All right, here we are. Episode number 90 of the Cozy Corner of Cinema. This is being recorded on Tuesday, December 19th, 2023 at 3.56 p.m. This is a chilly day. It's been windy as all hell today, man. I tell you, I go to walk to my car and the cool breeze just rapid like gunfire in the air, just penetrating right through you. It was completely gnarly. You drive on the road, you feel your car start to move around. Make sure that, uh, you know, you got your barrels where they need to be. They're not being knocked over and no trash being knocked over. I tell you, if the barrels are uh, not too full, and that trash is going to go everywhere, man. I, I tell you, I mean, going around and having to pick it all up and God forbid there's any glass or any kind of recycling there or, uh, yeah, it's a whole, whole issue right there. So just keep an eye out for anything in your yard that will, uh, that might have an impact because of the weather. If it should apply to you, my throat's a little dry. I apologize. I got this coffee right here. So I'm trying to keep uh, a steady flow of, uh, liquid, but at the same time, not stopping the conversation too frequently. As well as not trying to drink into the microphone. I tell you, you listen to some podcasts and they're eating and they're drinking in the microphone. I'm like, gosh, man, it looks like those, uh, <clears throat> it's like those mukbang, mukbang videos, man. People eating through the microphone. Holy macaroni. No pun intended. We're wrapping up the end of the year. It's a great time of the year. It's a cool time of the year. Literally a cool time of the year. If you're in a state with winter weather, that's Great, but even if you're not, you can get in that winter weather mentality of staying inside, getting under the blanket, drinking some hot beverages, whether it be tea or cocoa or coffee or anything like that. And, uh, you know, we have the holidays right around the corner. We want to buy gifts for our loved ones, people whom we enjoy the company of, a family, of friends, acquaintances, all that all that stuff. It's very easy to be overwhelmed by deadlines and by having to do this or do that by, by X amount of time. But we're going to take it one day at a time. We're going to take one thing at a time, one aspect at a time, not get overwhelmed, not let, let the daily milieu nonsense get us down because we have to keep moving on forward. So we're going to have a productive rest of our life. That's all we got to look forward to. We got to look forward to the rest of our life, man. We don't want to waste it doing nothing. Talking about nothing, associating people who are gonna do nothing. That's what you want to do. Then God bless you, you know. But I'm only gonna speak for myself. But uh, yeah, man. So it's been a never-ending game of ketchup. It seems to be a, a constant sort of um, theme here. But it really is, man. I've just been trying to catch up on so much stuff lately that some some stuff has been sacrificed above uh, others. I just have not had the opportunity as much of an opportunity to get reading done as I would have liked to. I, I've made not as much progress in this book that I, I thought I would have by this point with my previous uh, track record for the year. But that's right. It'll get done when it gets done. Same with, I mean, the writing's going great. That's going fantastic. The watching has to be kept up with. It's all these things you got to keep in a constant flow. You want to keep uh, your own kind of daily routine, daily pattern that... You don't even have to think twice about it. You just know, okay, I got to do this. I got to do X, Y, and Z. I got to do A, B, C, you know? And not just find yourself, uh, you know, sitting on your telephone, scrolling through social media, you know, reading comments, re- you know, watching like these little videos and stuff, and then wondering like, oh my gosh, the day's already over. What the hell? I, s- I had so much to do today. It's like, well, man, I can tell you where that time went, but you know, it's 
that that little short, uh, you know, the short rush of dopamine because you see, uh, you know, something on the internet and you you get fired up about some something someone said. You don't even know. It's just like, brother, that's that's a life being thrown away right there. I just you just see it's just like people glued to their telephones, man. It's just it's just gnarly as hell. It's uh just finding those 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 moments of time to really kind of perfect your to hone in your art to really kind of perfect your craft and grow every single day what the game plan is what life's game plan is man so that when we reach the end we can feel accomplished on what we've achieved in the time we were given it's beautiful man it's absolutely beautiful i don't think i'm gonna finish that book before the end of the month i don't know at least at this rate it doesn't seem likely so maybe next week or uh because i got two episodes left of the cozy corner i gotta do before the end of the year so one of these episodes we'll talk about some of the books that i had uh, read this year or at least some of the highlights i should say because i've read quite a bit this year uh, and some of which I've already talked about on the show, so I won't go too in-depth on it, but it'd be worth noting that, nonetheless, I got a uh, thing to record at the end of this week, so uh, I've been trying to catch up on some of these films that I've owned, because uh, we're doing a little Blu-ray list video, or episode, podcast, whatever you want to call it, um, so I've been having to get some of these watched in, so I can make a comprehensive list as well as I got this other these uh, list of films here I gotta watch as well as this writing project that I've been working on and these have to get watched before I can even continue the writings I need context so it's just one thing after another but it's good you know it's sort of like it's good to have your life's dreams and goals right in front of you because you gotta you know to go after it and achieve it and not just milly around and just kind of drift through daily life and and you know, just do nothing. It's just, it's just not worth it, man. It's, it's not worth throwing that life away for cheap, uh, kind of petty, uh, brief kind of amusements that ultimately don't lead to anything besides just, like I said before, these kind of short bursts of dopamine that fade away. You know, it's like food. It goes. It's like fast food, man. It goes. It, it doesn't. It's not really good for you. You know, it's fine once in a while and all that. But you know, if you're only in fast food, man, then don't be surprised if you know you get older and you're having trouble. You know, breathing, having trouble walking, or anything like that. It's like. You know, I don't know, man. It's what it is. I ain't gonna, ain't gonna preach to you all day about that. It's uh, just two cents I'd like to give. This coffee's delicious, by the way, so I keep having to pause it. Not pause it, but I keep having to stop my conversation flow to get a sip of this. It's crazy. You watch so many films a year that it's so easy to um, forget what you actually watch. And I write down every film that I watch. I mean, I log in a letterbox as well, but I've also been handwriting this Every film I've watched since 2012, so I've been handwriting every single film every year that I've seen for 11 years now, uh, including short films, uh, including, I would say miniseries, but I don't really watch enough that often. I mean, I guess I'm thinking like I watched like The Kingdom with Lars von Trier, so I'd write, write that down and I recently went through the Pacific, which I don't watch TV or anything like that, I man. I, I don't consider these to be, like, TV shows. I'm not going to sit down and watch, like, uh, you know, like a sitcom or something. It's just, it's just not even remotely on the radar. But these are, I find completely different. Because they feel more cinematic in terms of just, like, structure. And, uh, okay, so what I was saying before is that, sorry, I'm trying to get things organized here. Got this paper here, got my coffee here, got to get everything in line. Got to get this episode out, so I don't want to waste any more time. Here we go, all right. Hopefully my phone doesn't go off. So we're going to be talking about 
Avara Madigan, film from 1964, I believe. Let me pull it up here. 1967. Not 64. 1967, directed by Bo Viderberg. This is part of... Now, I knew of this film, but I could not remember for the life of me if I had seen this one or not. And I had watched it, which is, goes without saying, of course, as we're going to talk about it. And I looked, and I had already seen this last year, but it had gone out of my memory. So, this was really a, a first-time watch in terms of it really sticking with me, because I, I maybe there were moments that seemed familiar, but overall as a film, it hadn't quite stuck with me from the first initial viewing. But like I said, this is directed by Bo Viderberg, written by Bo, written by Bo Viderberg, also by Johan Lindstrom, Saxon, starring... Two primary actors. Here you have Pia Degermark, who plays the main title character. And then you have Tommy Berggren, who plays Sixten Spare. And this is a really great journey along the countryside. Now, I don't know. This takes place, I believe, soon after. I don't know which war it is, so I do have to apologize on that. It takes place in the late 1800s. That's what it is here. And it's these two characters who are going along this countryside of, uh, where was it? it had, I, it's uh, the Danish countryside. That's correct here, man. And they're on the run. You have this main character. Uh, you have the main character, uh, like I said before, Lieutenant 16 Spar, who has abandoned his post. They're going after him. Avara Madigan is a tightrope walker, and they both want to live their own quiet life, get away from the authorities. But uh, you know, they have a bit of celebrity about them. They're going along the countryside, kind of scavenging what they can, surviving on what they can. And it's a film that it is stronger on the mood than it is any kind of story. You know, a film like this, if you're going to be looking for a, a something closer to a traditional narrative, then you're going to be disappointed because this is far more about being with these characters and just how far they will go. And when I say how far they will go, I don't necessarily mean in a dark way because this is never, this is, doesn't turn into a film like, uh, like Weekend or something like that. We have these two characters, um, and you know, it, it gets progressively darker as it goes along, but it's more so we see the difficulties that these two characters face. Uh, now, the thing is that the film almost kind of sneaks up on you with, uh, I don't even want to say essential conflict, because that'd be uh, the incorrect thing to say. However, the true um, the true seriousness of the situation is an afterthought in an intentional way, where you have these characters who are going along, living off of their own love for one another. And there was actually one line that I wrote down that really stuck out is as it says uh i think it was elvira that says we can't butter our bread with love because they're starving and as much as they love one another they can only go so far to the point where they're they're scouring they're scouring along on the ground in the woods trying to find really anything and the film has a fairly relaxed tone throughout that even when it gets to the more dire consequences that these characters find themselves in, an increasingly hopeless situation where um, they really can't, they can't turn to anybody, they can't turn to anything, they are just one another. It, ne it always has that same sort of tonal feeling, even up to the ending as well. A fantastic ending as well. Um, let me think of my uh, coffee right here. Give me one second on this. And when I was mentioning before about 
the conflict kind of creeping in on you. And, I mean, you're watching this film, man. You have these two leads, and at no point... I mean, th- it says that these two guys are... Uh, these two, uh, you know, Elvira and Sixton are starving. But, you know, you don't really... You don't get a clear sense of any kind of starvation from them. I mean, they, throughout the entire film, they look good. I mean, they got makeup on. They, they, it doesn't look like any kind of drastic weight loss. So, you can view that as any which way you want, whether that is... I don't know how in- intentional of a choice that is. I've read nothing on this film. I've read no interviews with Bill Viterberg or anything about the other uh, uh, relations that it has to um, the... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Because I think... I forgot what the text at the beginning of the film said, but I think it... I don't know if it alluded that this was a true story or if this was something else entirely. Um, I may not be able to pull that up right here, but either way. It's a terrific film, though. I mean, the thing with the film is that it has that, that relaxed feeling... But as it goes along, you know that the situation is not going to be able to get any, any better for these two. They have two options, to starve or, to, or to, to face the authorities. And it looks like for the majority of their case, they're willing to just kind of wait it out and see if the situation gets better. This sort of idealistic love that's doomed from the very start, whether or not they can find a way to make it last and keep themselves alive is up for you to find out. But I should also say how the film is shot. It is beautiful. The sun paints a lot of these sets where you just see these great, lush, open, yellow, kind of grassy landscapes. The costume designs as well. I mean, it's all, like I said before, it's it's in the late 1800s, so you have these fantastic, uh, you know, dresses and suits, and it's all just top tier, man. This is the only Bo Viterberg film that I've seen. I I intend to go through the rest of the collection before... um, I have a deadline I have to get to, so I'm not sure if I, I can't compare this to really anything else, nor should it. It should really kind of just stand on its own. However, sometimes for historical kind of context, I'm looking at a film like Donkey Skin by Jacques Demy um, compared to some of his other films where that is a period piece, um, but then in some of his other films... The Umbrellas of Cherbourg and The Young Girls of Rochefort uh, and Lola are, are more contemporary pieces, but it's interesting to see a film like that where he is working in an entirely different kind of landscape and is able to contrast his more traditional sort of uh, 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 films as opposed to that, because that's definitely the odd man out, I would say. I haven't seen all of Jacques Demy's films, so I can't say for sure, but uh, this film in particular, I can't really compare to anything else of Bo Viterberg's filmography. But um, I, I film another film of this would be an obvious comparison, but I think it's worth mentioning nonetheless, is another film that... Uh, well, this film is actually based on a true story. It's a more popular Hollywood film, Into the Wild, from 2007, directed by Sean Penn, starring Emile Hirsch, based on a true story of this man. His name was Chris McCandless, who grew up in a very wealthy family. He had everything that he could possibly want, but decides to give all his money away and basically live off of the land and the side effects, the positives and the negatives and the ultimate outcome of that lifestyle that it affects on him. That's a far more popular film. The true story of that as well has been talked about much and has been speculated upon uh, to this day. 
of how much of the film and not, not only the film, but of the novel itself is accurate to the real situation. Ultimately, this is a, it's a situation where we have one person who is by themselves. We can only speculate on so much of it. Um, but that film is a, is a fair companion piece to this. That is a more Hollywood populist film. This is this film, Evar Madigan, is far more avant-garde, far more about the character than it is about the story. But overall, I, I would say that the two do kind of work with each other about this sort of way of the land and how long can you really survive on it? You know, how long these these people who come from royalty or, or come from this is a kind of wealthy background and rejecting that for something closer to um, being one with the earth. It's, it's just, it's fantastic, man. No, this is a fantastic film. Into the Wild as well is very good as well. It's been a, a few years since I've seen it. Um, so it's more so specific sequences that are uh, remembered than entire portions of the film. But that film as well, I think is very good and should be and really recommended as well. Should be seen, should you be interested. So terrific stuff there. Absolutely. Keeping up with, coincidentally actually, another collection that uh, I had to get to, and this film came up as to watch. So it kind of all worked out. Was a later work from uh, Mr. Franc- Francois Truffaut. This was his 1978 film, The Green Room. This uh, was directed by Truffaut, written by him, Jean Geralt, and Henry James, and it stars Truffaut. And this would be his final acting role. This film was released in 1978. He would pass away in 1984, died very young. Uh, But this wouldn't be his last directed film. He would do a couple others after this, um, including the follow-up to this, which would be his last um, of the Antoine, Antoine Dornel films, which would be Love on the Run from 1979. Then he would do The Last Metro in 1980, The Woman Next Door in 1981, and Confidentially Yours in 1983. But this would be, like I said before, his last acting role, let alone the subject matter of the film, and the fact that, above all else, this feels like a proper... Now, I haven't seen... Uh, the only film this, of his I've seen after this uh, is The Last Metro, which, which is a good film, but I haven't seen the other couple. I haven't seen Confidentially Yours uh, or The Woman Next Door. I apologize. I've also seen Love on the Run. I do apologize about that. But The Green Room feels like kind of a good... Uh, farewell to his career, starting, you know, with the start of his career with The 400 Blows, a film about the youth, about this character, Antoine Dornel, and the problems that he gets into in his daily life. Again, when I'm talking about that automatic, and it's far more about the character and the mood rather than a cohesive plot. Not to say the film is, in, not to say the film is incohesive, but if that's what you're looking for, then you're looking for it in the wrong place. Unlike The Green Room, which is closer to a plot, a traditional plot in in terms of not just not exactly its structure, but in terms of the, of it having a clear begin having a clear progression with these uh, with these characters, primarily with the main character Julian, played by Truffaut, who this film is a meditation on uh, death on the people in his life who have died, 
Julian is somebody who has come back uh, from war, and um, I think that was from. I think he he was come back from war. I'm trying to remember. Yeah, that's right, because he was talking about the people who his friends he had lost in the war, and um, so his wife has passed away. The film at the beginning starts out with him at uh, a funeral, and he is seeing death differently than the people in the room. You know, he's taking it far more. Uh, he's taking it far more personally, where he understands sort of the um, the the weight of the situation. In that he doesn't see death as an, as he doesn't see it in the way that, that the other people there see it. Early on, there's a priest who's talking about how they're going to live on in, in, in heaven and, and everything's all that. And, and Truffaut rejects that idea. And he basically sees death as a celebration in a way where he wants to keep their memories and keep their spirits alive in the way that they affected, you know, the characters in the film and, and the rejection of this idea of, of something of a tragedy. Cause what it goes into is that uh, in a, in a, in the contrast of that, when he rejects the idea of, of, of what the priest says, there's this abandoned church that he wants to make as sort of a memorial to those people who have died. And he wants to light a candle for each person to keep those candles, um, the flames on those candles burning to keep their memory alive. You know, he's having all these, these visions in his head of the people who didn't come home from war of people close to him who's, who've passed. And it's, it's a sadness, but it's not a melancholy. He is seeing this in a way where he feels obli- he feels obligated to keep their memories alive because he feels like the, everybody else won't. There's a great moment in uh, the first act of the film where a character, uh, which goes back to the beginning, where a character has, has very quickly moved on from a, a death a close, a, a loved one was close, and Truffaut is sickened at the idea. He's furious. He says, "How can you even remotely move on to somebody else? This is somebody who cared for you, and this is somebody who actually their life actually meant something." And and it's all about how we all perceive death in our own varied ways. And with Truffaut, it feels very personal in the way that he sees these characters. And and the reason why I say it's kind of an interesting bookend to his career, even though it's not his last film is that contrast of Truffaut is, uh, I mean, you know, what year was, what year was the 400 blows? That was, uh, that was 1959. So this is 1978, almost 20 years later. And I mean, Truffaut would only live for about, for less than another decade now. So you have this person who's at the end of their life, presumably, I mean, when I say the end of their life, not the end of their age, you know, I'm talking about like, they're not, they're not an old man, but in retrospect, that's what it kind of, you know, being having um, perspective on Truffaut not, you know, not being around for that much longer compared to a lot of his contemporaries. I mean, Godard just passed away only recent, fairly recently. So Truffaut, Truffaut died fairly young, but was able to put out many, many a great work. And in a way, watching this film with his death in that perspective kind of makes Truffaut's actual death in real life, it it gives a different outlook on the whole situation of just the fact that we're still watching these films, the fact that we're we're still discussing Truffaut's work and keeping his memory alive, not in just a superficial way of just saying he was a great artist, he was a great filmmaker, he was a great writer, a great actor, you know, that's, that's... that's superficial. It's all about 
what he meant to the people who were close to him, much in the same way that you or I, the people who whose lives have affected us and the lives that we affect on unto others. And, you know, those who have come and gone with us and keeping that spirit alive for them, maybe not a chapel of candles, literally, but maybe metaphorically, of just keeping that flame burning. You know, it's one, it's a film that I had to sit on for a couple days because the way that it goes along is that it feels almost uh, ethereal in, in a weird kind of way at times, where it feels, it feels almost like, uh, uh, when you get to the stuff with the chapel, when you get to all the candles there, it's, I mean, it's all lit by these candles, the place is abandoned, it feels almost kind of uh, like, in, not even an afterlife per se, but it feels like sort of a different plane of existence, a plane of reality. There's a great kind of uh, tracking shot when you first go in. It's this dark kind of woodsy area at night, and you just see kind of these faint crosses in the background all rusted, and, and maybe not rusted, I'm sorry, all, all grass overgrown on them. And then once you step in, and the burning of these candles illuminates this life out there, kind of in from the darkness, showing that it's all right, man. You know, those who have come with us uh, are not here physically with us anymore, but their spirit is always with us. There's something very poetic and, and very um, not sad about it. It's very, like, hopeful in the way. And and that's why I feel like with this film, you know, with... with I, I enjoy... The Last Metro is good. And I really do like Love on the Run. I guess, actually, ironically, that'd be the end of that series as well, the Antoine Donnell films. Uh, there was about six of those, and I think I've seen all but, like, two or three of them. I can't remember. I've seen Stolen Kisses, Bed and Board, 400 Blows, and Love on the Runs. So, there are two I haven't seen. But in a way, this feels like a great bookend to just a brilliant, brilliant filmmaker uh, the way that this is shot, the way that the tracking shot goes into the chapel, it's these candles like behind this like gate, this kind of entrance to it's like all the world, man. It's just so touching, and it's so the way that he has all these pictures up on the walls and he's talking about the people that he knew. It's very poetic, and I don't want to use such shallow, simple kind of phrasings of this. But this is a film that I, I think I really do need to sit on. But of Truffaut's work, it's one of his that has stuck with me. I guess most impactfully, and this isn't to say this is like my favorite of his work, um, you know, but I am saying that as much as I enjoy some of his work, like, you know, Stolen Kisses or Day for Night or one of these kinds of films, I think The Green Room is a different kind of film. And in that respect, it has a different sort of, um, a different sort of uh, uh, lasting feeling beyond a shallow, oh, it was just a good film or, or this or that, man. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful film. And I think it's one of Truffaut's most underrated in terms of I've not really heard too much about this in, in the conversation. I would be interested to go back and read that Truffaut book that I had finished earlier this year that I'd gone through his films, and I still haven't seen a couple of his films. Uh, I think I haven't seen... Like, I haven't seen True the Piano Player. I haven't seen his American um, Fahrenheit uh, 451. Uh, or, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Fahrenheit... Um, I always forget the hell is it called. 451, I'm sorry. Oh, long day at work, y'all. Uh, anyways, but great stuff nonetheless. I did watch this on the Kino Lorber collection. So keep that in mind. I think this is a wonderful, wonderful film and one of Truffaut's very best. Great stuff. 
I, uh, I think that's where I'm going to wrap it up for this one. I think this is a good place. Alvara Madigan and The Green Room. Two wonderful, quiet, methodical art films that are completely worthy of your time if that is what you're looking for. But thank you guys for listening yet again. We'll be back soon. Got some new episodes coming up. Got one recording later this week. So that'll be up as soon as can be. But anyways, I'm going to wrap it up right here. Thank you for listening. Take care. Have a great rest of your day or night whenever you're listening to this.